Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, wasted doses, wasted money. And I'm just asking the government to be clear with its decisions and its approaches to Canadians. The Auditor General gives a mixed review of the government's vaccine rollout and COVID support programs. They helped, but doses were tossed out and billions of dollars given to people who did not qualify. We will speak with the Auditor General. Also, nature is under threat. The Prime Minister welcomes the world to Montreal as delegates from nearly 200 countries try to hammer out a deal to save the world's biodiversity. Coming up, we will speak with the Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault. And... Remembering the lives lost at Montreal's École Polytechnique 33 years ago today. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sorapio. The Auditor General released two new reports today, the 10th and 11th report to look at this country's COVID-19 response. One was on the procurement and distribution of vaccines, the other on government support programs that were created to help out individuals and businesses. In the end, both efforts received mixed reviews, both accomplishing what they were designed to do, but both also losing money. Well, we're now joined by the Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan. Ms. Hogan, good to see you again. Hi. So you have released uh, two reports today, and I do want to begin with the benefits paid out to Canadians during the height of the pandemic. Now, now you credit these payments for preventing a rise in poverty, uh, helping Canadians with financial challenges, not to mention the economy. But billions of dollars went to people who did not qualify. Just how much money are we talking about? How did that even happen? So you're right. You're referring to our audit on the COVID-19 benefits. And in that audit, we looked at um, at least six uh, COVID support programs to individuals and businesses. And we identified that because of the government's early decision to um, limit prepayment controls and rely on attestations, uh, they even identified that it would um, result in payments going to ineligible individuals. And what we found is that $4.6 billion went to individuals who were ineligible to receive those payments. And we also estimated that at least $27.4 billion uh, require further investigation that were paid to either individuals or businesses through the COVID-19 support program. Okay, so, so more investigation, but what do you think that investigation would actually find? So the first step really here is to identify whether or not individuals and businesses uh, were in fact ineligible. Uh, there was no information or limited information gathered on application from individuals and very little information gathered from businesses. And um, the, the government needs to do a more comprehensive and rigorous post-payment verification work, follow up with those people and businesses to confirm if they meet the criteria. And once you've identified the payment that are ineligible, then you can make the decision about the next steps and recovery. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, in your report, you note the fact that there is a window uh, to recover some of that money, but you say, uh, what, that the window is quickly closing? 
Absolutely. The window is quickly closing. Existing legislation uh, for individuals um, gives the government about 36 months to identify whether or not a payment was made to someone who shouldn't have received it. Um, now, that time period is extended if there was some fraud or intention to deceive. When it comes to businesses, for the most part, that period of time to identify ineligible payments is uh, somewhere between 36 and 48 months. And so uh, it is time for the government to speed up its post-payment work in order to be able to uh, get those notifications out to individuals and businesses. Okay. Uh, businesses aside, I'm, I'm actually thinking about individuals right now because does it actually make sense to go after these individuals? It would cost money to do that. And if payments went to low-income people or families, uh, who would the government really be hurting? So it really isn't my decision to to decide on on policy and and legislative approaches. Um, my expectations are grounded in two things. Following my first audit in 2021, the Canada Revenue Agency and Employment and Social Development Canada committed to comprehensive post-payment verification work. And existing legislation here in Canada states that every taxpayer, whether they be an individual or business, should be treated fairly. And when amounts received um, are, are they're not entitled to, those should be returned. Uh, if the government, however, wants to take a different approach, one where they might forgive repayments or take an empathetic approach to collections, then that's their decision to, to be made. But I recommend that they be clear and transparent with all Canadians so that everyone knows what to expect. Mm -hmm. Now, your other report today, it deals with the procurement and the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. Now, you give the government, uh, I guess, a good review for acquiring and distributing the vaccines in a timely manner. But you also say that millions of doses were wasted. Just how many are we talking about here? Uh, so in that audit, we looked at whether the Public Health Agency of Canada, Health Canada and Public Service and Procurement Canada were able to secure sufficient doses for all Canadians who wanted to be vaccinated, vaccinated. And what we found is they did a good job responding to the uncertainty and ever evolving nature of the pandemic. Um, early on in 2020, the government signed seven advanced purchase agreements um, because of the uncertainty at that time. And that resulted in there being a surplus of doses um, that are not have not been able to be used or donated. Uh, throughout our audit period, we identified about a little over 13 million um, doses have expired so far on the shelves and some more are set to expire before the end of the year. Now, how avoidable is that though because at the beginning the government was casting a wide net really not knowing as you alluded to which company would come out with a successful vaccine first uh, I'm wondering if in that time period whether or not waste is just you know a cost of doing business at the time and when you talk about vaccines right now you know the government is supplying it it does mean to say Canadians are picking up on those doses though yeah, so the decision back in 2020, it's, it's easy to, to sit today and look back and say, gee, we should have made a different choice as a country. But if you put yourself back in 2020 and, and look at the um, global demand, uh, the race to get a vaccine, no one knew which vaccine company would be the first to have a viable vaccine out there. Would they be approved uh, for use in Canada? And so all that uncertainty um, meant that the government signed additional contracts. I would say that their approach was a prudent one in order to ensure that every Canadian who wanted access to a vaccine was able to get access. Um, you know, we don't have Canadian manufacturing, so add that on, and it adds to some of that uncertainty. 
what could have been done better throughout the pandemic, however, is managing the supply and the needs and, and the logistics. And that's where we made a recommendation around the IT system that was developed called Vaccine Connect uh, in order to manage it. They didn't, the government didn't use all the functionalities and that really would have hopefully helped limit um, some of the wastage and if it's fully utilized now may help do that in a, as we buy more bivalence across the country. Mm -hmm. Now you as you noted in your own news conference you know health care is, is, is delivered both provincially and, and federally so even if you make this recommendation to Ottawa what about the provinces and sharing that kind of information? I think that's an issue that my office has raised for almost a quarter of a century now. I would go back to our first audit in 1999, where we talked about the need to figure out the sharing of health surveillance information across the country. Provinces, territories, and the federal government have not lined out, uh, ironed out what to share and when to share information during emergencies. Um, you know, I don't know how many other public health crisis that we need before the country sorts out this issue. It's one that would not only improve the healthcare system, but improve responses to um, health emergencies like we've lived through with H1N1, SARS, and now COVID-19. Karen Hogan, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, the government did respond to the AG and her reports today. Carla Qualtro is the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. Here's what she had to say about the billions of dollars that went to people who actually did not qualify for financial support. Of the $4.6 billion that the Auditor General identified as having people ineligible, um, we, wrote, we identified 1.8 million people. 3.1 billion of that had to do with advance payments. People got, we tried to get money out quickly. People got advance payment. If they stayed in the CERB system, that was methodically um, recovered as a matter of course. If they didn't, we had to get it back from them. So of, we sent the letters to 1.8 million people. We've recovered 1.3 billion of that money. We are working on individualized payment plans for the others. We're trying to work with Canadians in very difficult time. And I wouldn't mistake a lack of aggressive pursuit for not doing it. It's just we're being compassionate. To Montreal now, where the Prime Minister welcomed delegates from nearly 200 countries today, gathered in the city's Palais de Congrès for the UN Convention on Biodiversity. Now, China was meant to host the gathering two years ago, but ongoing COVID restrictions forced a change of venue, and Canada and Montreal stepped forward. But the task is not an easy one, trying to hammer out an agreement to preserve ecosystems and protect species as both come increasingly under threat. For his part, the Prime Minister is promising to invest another $350 million to the effort. Of the world's five biggest countries, none of us is yet at 30% of both our land and waters protected. Now, we don't have to get all the way there by tomorrow, but by 2030, we all really do. By 2030, we must halt and reverse biodiversity loss. Well, we're now joined by the minister responsible for the environment and dealing with climate change, Stephen Gibbeau. Minister, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael. You know, I'm wondering how you are feeling right now about this conference as you will be leading uh, the Canadian delegation, representatives from nearly 200 countries trying to hammer out an agreement. Just how challenging will this be? How do you feel taking on this challenge? 
we obviously thought long and hard with the Prime Minister about whether or not we would accept this uh, this offer that was being made to us by the United Nations to host us um, because it was supposed to be held in China because of COVID, the Chinese couldn't couldn't hold it then. It had been postponed for two years. So there was a real desire by the international community that it would take place this year and they turned to us for that. So it's a it's both a great honor, but also a, an important responsibility, which we don't take uh, we, we don't take lightly. Which is why we've been heavily involved in the in the negotiations and the discussions uh, internationally over the last. Uh, five, I mean, we were already involved, but we've been heavily involved over the last five months. Mm-hmm. More heavily involved, and uh, certainly a nod to this country that uh, it was approached by uh, the United Nations and the countries involved. But you know, I'm wondering about how you feel about our country's moral authority to be leading these discussions on biodiversity. We've just seen a report that tells us that nearly 20% of all native species in this country are facing the possibility of extinction. What does that say about Canada's moral authority going into these talks? I think, I mean, if you look at globally, the rate of extinction is 25%. Um, so we all have challenges there are no countries out there who can say listen we've we've solved this we we have everything right there are certainly leaders there are countries that, that are doing more than others there are some that are playing catch-up um, i I'd, I'd say canada has proven over the last few years that, that that we were stepping up to the plate um when we came into power in 2015 canada wasn't even protecting two percent of our oceans and coastlines we're now more than 15 percent. we did that in seven years um, and, and we need to continue on, at this rate to, to achieve the ambitious target we've set for ourselves of protecting 30% of our lands and oceans by, by 2030. There's been a number of studies by environmental organizations in Canada, conservation organizations that say it's possible. We, we can do that. Now, it won't happen by, by chance. It won't fall uh, in, into our lap. We'll have to work hard with Indigenous people, with civil society, provinces, territories, even the private sector. To achieve those goals, but but it is feasible. It is the goal, uh, and a couple of things that you mentioned there. Let's begin with 30 and 30. This idea of protecting uh, waters and oceans, 30% of it, with uh, really uh, by uh, 2030. So you're looking about eight years from now. Canada is nowhere near that goal right now. It's my understanding we're we're about half of, of that goal mark, uh, roughly speaking. What do you see as the the, the low hanging fruit that Canada can tackle right away? What do you see Canada tackling in seven, eight years time to meet that goal? Well, as I said, when it comes to ocean, we we protected in the last seven years, 13 percent of our of our oceans. Um, So we can do it. But clearly we've we've proven that that it is possible to do it. What are we doing? We're we've intensified our our, our discussions with indigenous people. with provinces and, and, and territories, we're, we're, we've committed billions of dollars, five billions of dollars for, for, for nature in Canada, which is orders of magnitude larger than anything that had been done before in, in, in this country. So we're, we're confident that between those two elements, we will be able to, to achieve our, 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 our targets. Um, we will have, I hope, in the coming days, good news to announce in terms of our our work with Indigenous people and some provinces and, and, and territories in terms of the nature agreements, where it's not only the federal government, but provinces and territories that also commit to protecting 30% of lands and oceans by by 2030. So I, we have our work cut out for us, for sure. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. But what I'm saying is that it is within the realm of possibilities. We can do this. 
Mm-hmm. Now, more than once, you've you've mentioned indigenous leadership when it comes to protecting biodiversity. Uh, Talk to us about the importance of Indigenous leadership, how you're hoping to highlight that at this conference. Well, that's a good question. And in fact, when the United Nations asked us to host uh, the the, the conference, one of the things we told them is that we wanted to make Indigenous-led conservation one of the central theme of, of, of this conference. So we will have uh, Indigenous presence being felt throughout throughout the conference. Um, Indigenous leaders will be invited to, to, to speak. Uh, the, Canadian, the Canadian Pavilion features uh, Indigenous art that's largely related to nature um, uh, as part of what thousands of people will be able to see in, in, in the coming two weeks from all, from all over the world. So we wanted to ensure that they had a, their rightful place at, at, at this international table and they could talk about what they're doing and their vision uh, for, for, for conservation and, and for the future of, of Canada and, and the planet as well. Now, as you know, uh, in Ontario, the, the green belt established by the province is now uh, being challenged with development, encroaching on that, gre- uh, that green space put aside by, by Ontario. And it, it does make me wonder about the importance with which Canadians attach to biodiversity, whether or not they understand biodiversity. Certainly a lot of the language has been around climate change. But what would you say to Canadians right now about the importance of this conference and why biodiversity is important to protect? We, we can't hope to have a prosperous and thriving societies, whether in Canada or internationally, if, if our development continues to be made at the detriment of living conditions on this planet. For, for, for decades, there was this idea that somehow humans and the natural world were separated. What are we if not the air we breathe, the water we drink, and, and, and the food we eat? And, and, and those things come from nature. Um, so we need to protect nature to protect ourselves. Uh, and, and some people will do it for, 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 for the beauty of nature and for the intri- intrinsic value of, of nature itself. But if you're not doing it for that, then do it, do it for you as, as humans. We, we, we are part of this. We are linked to, 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 to the natural world. The more we degrade the natural world, the more as a society, as a species, humans will, will suffer. Uh, and, and reversely, the more we protect, the better off we will be collectively here in Canada and around the world. Minister, appreciate the time today. Uh, We'll speak again before the conference is through, no doubt. Great pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And one final note on COP15. After our interview with Minister Guibault, protesters did interrupt the Prime Minister's remarks at the conference. It was a brief interruption, but this is what it looked like. In Ukraine, millions of people are once again living without electricity in freezing temperatures after Russia unleashed another round of missile strikes yesterday. Ukraine says it shot down upwards of 70 missiles that were fired, but the Kremlin is claiming it hit all 17 of its targets. Now this is the backdrop as two Ukrainian parliamentarians come to Ottawa looking for continued support and sharing what they have witnessed on the ground as Russia continues its illegal war campaign. With more, we're now joined by Ivana Klimpush-Sinsaya, who is a former Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, and Maria Yovona, who is a Ukrainian Member of Parliament. Welcome to the two of you. We're grateful for having you, you having us here. 
Thank you for invitation. Uh, Ivan, I'm going to begin with you. The, the Kremlin continues their illegal invasion of Ukraine. We have seen the relentless missile strikes. And not that long ago, we also heard from the NATO Secretary General, he accused Russia of weaponizing winter. What have you seen, what have you heard uh, that would support that accusation? Well, it's our life uh, that we are living through as a horror every single day. Uh, because um, a lot of families uh, in Ukraine, uh, basically in um, 19 regions out of 24, uh, are living at this particular moment with at least 12 hour, um, power outages. Uh, that means that they are using um, winter as a weapon and they are trying to sow this uh, chaos and, and uh, frustration and humanitarian disaster into Ukrainian society. But they are definitely not reaching their goals. They are just getting the other, um, the opposite response uh, because uh, people are more resolute to fight back and to ensure that this aggressor is uh, being kicked out from the from our land. Resolute, as you say, as we continue to see this this bombardment of Ukrainian infrastructure. Tell us a bit more, Ivan, if you will, of, of the kind of suffering people are undergoing right now, because I can't imagine, for example, trying to deal with winter without heating in their homes. Uh, you're very right by asking this question, because it's, it's really, you know, when you are in a warm apartment in a warm house uh, with electricity, with water supply, it's pretty difficult to imagine how people are adjusting. And uh, people are uh, trying to uh, to provide for themselves um, through generators, but definitely not everyone can allow this this thing to be bought. Uh, so they are grouping up with, the, with families, with friends, and, and trying to go through this uh, very, very difficult and challenging times together and obviously the government is also trying along with the private companies to repair the grids to to provide for some also uh, temporary relief with generators but that's not yet covering all the needs so that's why we are also here because it's part of the uh, priority request right now from uh, from Ukrainian uh, society to have more engagement to have some energy rumstein that uh, in coordinated effort providing Ukraine with the ability to a uh, defend itself and protect its civilian infrastructure through air defense and uh, anti-rocket defense but also repair the grids uh, so that we can provide people with basic basic needs uh, to go through this tough winter that is ahead of us mm -hmm. if I no. to add that of course. this is the next uh, it's yeah it's uh, again a uh, war crime uh, against humanity and uh, against civilian uh, population because uh, he wanted to freeze our children, our elder people, I mean social infrastructure. So it's uh, uh, an evidence that Russia is a uh, state who is financing such terrorist acts because uh, also not only uh, his heating, not only our uh, infrastructure, but uh, among this 100 or sometimes more than 100 missiles, it's they're also heating maternity houses, hospitals and uh, private uh, houses. So he's killing civilian people. And that is why it's uh, uh, another case, uh, a more additional case uh, for the international tribunal. Mm -hmm. uh, international tribunal. And yeah, and you know, Maria, it's interesting you raise all that because today, uh, I'm sure you're aware, is a grim anniversary here in Canada, a day when we remember the murder of 14 women at Montreal's uh, Ecole Polytechnique back in 1989. And that's poignant because when you think of the violence inflicted 
on the women of Ukraine as a result of this illegal invasion. We seem to be hearing more and more stories of crimes, uh, as you said, war crimes, in this case committed against women in the country. Can you tell us about what uh, has been collected, the stories that have been uh, unearthed at this point? Uh, of course, we will not tell you the exact numbers for today. Uh, we have uh, the number of criminal cases which have been already uh, investigated by a law enforcement institution, but unfortunately the world will be more shocked when um, the occupied territories also will be liberated. But it's not only uh, uh, sexual violence, and you know that uh, the youngest who have been raped was four years, and the elders will 82 years old, so it's uh, uh, with what kind of, if I, I, I even cannot name them people we, we, we have all together, I mean the free world. Um, but I also would like to say that it's not only about violence, it's not only about kidnapping, uh, um, raping and torture, but it's also we would like to share with you with the positive stories about women because we see women now in armed forces, we see women in territorial defense, we see women uh, uh, business, economic, um, social uh, social uh, services and also they're staying with their communities and you know that we have lost the, a lot of women, the mayors and the, the uh, uh, chairs of the communities have been killed by Russian soldiers. Uh, but uh, anyway, we we are all together uh, working, and I think that this is also an asset. Our Ukrainian women, how have they, uh, how do they deal uh, with the, um, this aggression, acts of war crimes? But uh, we, of course, also need more support from our international friends. Uh, um, but uh, we need also to think about our hostages and prisoners in Russian, uh, in Russian, uh, in Russian territory. So we also call not to forget about them, that we have to release them, and uh, Geneva Convention has to be implemented by Russia Federation. Mm -hmm. Now, Ivana, it's been suggested by countries like France that a negotiated peace is still possible. Do you agree with that? You know, I'm very much worried when I hear um, the calls uh, from France, for example, to think and provide Russia with some security guarantees. So I cannot really understand what exactly has to happen uh, for the uh, fi final sobering up of all the international community in order to understand what are we standing up against. Ukrainian people, in huge majority, more than 80% at this particular moment, are not supporting any negotiations with the Russian Federation. Any offer of the negotiations that Russia is putting on the table through its uh, media channels is basically a smokescreen in order to regroup and to start yet another attack on Ukraine. So we have to understand that we are uh, dealing with variants with people who do not honor any um, commitments, any laws, any treaties, any uh, memorandums that they have signed up to uh, by uh, being a country that was supposed to provide uh, security assurances for Ukraine because Ukraine has given up its uh, third biggest nuclear arsenal in the world back in 1994. So at this point we do not see any possible negotiated solution and I think the best negotiator is our armed forces um, of Ukraine at this particular moment. But we need the backing uh, with more weaponry, with uh, 
um, you know, more um, capability to our armed forces to actually ensure that we are um, capably um, further liberating our territories and liberating our people who are waiting there in, under occupation. Mm -hmm. uh, Maria, quickly running out of time, but you know, we, we heard Ivana talk about basic needs, military needs. What other message do you want Canadian parliamentarians to know, to hear, while you are in Ottawa? I think that the world has to think about strategy of victory, not of restraining and um, weaknesses Russia, and to think about security guarantee for Ukraine. And the best security guarantee for Ukraine is NATO membership. Maria, Ivana, thank you for the time today. Thank, thank you. you, Michael. Thank you. Now, as we said earlier, today does mark the 33rd anniversary of the Montreal École Polytechnique shootings. 14 women lost their lives in that horrific event. Another 14 people were injured. The women were targeted, and since that deadly mass shooting, December the 6th has been a day of remembrance in this country and a call to action to combat violence against women and girls. There were commemoration ceremonies in many communities today, the Prime Minister and the Quebec Premier taking part in the ceremony at L'Ecole Polytechnique itself. And that is our program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.